Well, let's pray so we can get started, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for another Lord's Day at Heritage Grace where we can worship you in spirit and truth. Thank you for these glorious and triumphant hymns that we can sing, that we can uh, use to encourage our own hearts and our own minds to be able to sing uh, the truths of what your scriptures declare that the blood of Jesus can indeed make the vilest sinner clean. And uh, who of us in this room would not say we are the chief of sinners? Who of us, Lord, would not say that we are vile and we need cleansing? And so, Father, we thank you that the blood of Jesus sanctifies us and cleanses us, Lord, and justifies us. And, Lord, we thank you for redeeming us. And, uh, Father, we ask for your help now. We pray that you would be pleased, Lord, and be uh, glorified in everything that we say and do. And, and, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to bless our service We pray that you would put your hand of blessing upon us and give us your spirit, Lord, in fullness so that we could apprehend what your word teaches to us now. Thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, Genesis chapter 3, we are now going to be looking at um, the part of protology that deals with the the fall. And we only have two more sections that I want to look at. Don't know how long that will take, but... Really, fall and promise, um, that's what we did uh, when we looked at uh, really Genesis chapter 2 and following, looked at, uh, we, we looked at the Garden of Eden, and we, we're looking now at the fall, and the last part of this is going to be to look at the promise. Uh, but the fall is very important for many, many reasons, uh, just, from a, just from a systematic theology level, um, the fall is really important for our theology, really important for our doctrine. Uh, let me just read a couple things about this. So kind of, even though we've been going through biblical theology, I just kind of want to digress back to systematic theology, make some comments about the importance of the fall uh, of man into sin and talk about what it is that happened there. Um, the fall was an edemic, uh, what I would call a collaboration, really because of the serpent, that resulted in man's demerit. Uh, that's very important because what happened is that, you know, man obviously did not just become sinful, but he became, um, he, 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 he lost his ability even to earn the righteousness of God. Remember, the tree of life was um, a symbol of man's state of probation. That man was in a state of probation whereby he could, through obedience, had he obeyed God's covenant law, which was what? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? You can eat of all the other trees, but don't eat of the knowledge of of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, And we believe that what that would have resulted in was the ability to partake of the tree of life, which would have resulted in perpetual life in righteousness, uh, but he loses that and he enters into a state of demerit. So now he not only does not have positive righteousness, but now he actually has demerit. Now he is in, in iniquitous. Now he has transgressed God's law. Now he has been uh, subtracted uh, in terms of his standing before God so that he needs now a, uh, uh, some sort of merit that will get him over his depravity. And so, of course, from this comes the sinful nature, right? Because of Adam, because Adam is our covenant head, 
because he represented all of his posterity, all of humanity was represented in Adam. And when he ate of the forbidden fruit, um, all of humanity fell with him. He was the representative head. Uh, and of course, we know what this means theologically. We know that there is a Christological antitype to this, that Jesus is, in fact, the last Adam who represents all of his humanity. Uh, very careful there, uh, brothers and sisters, not to arrive at universalism, thinking that because Adam represented all mankind, Jesus now represents all mankind. The way that theologians have put it, and I think it's more responsible and more accurate to the text, is that just as Adam represented his humanity, so too Jesus represents his humanity. And I think you see evidence of that in different places. Um, uh, for example, in Romans uh, chapter 5, verses 12 and following, you'll see that Jesus is representing not everybody without exception, but he is representing those who have faith in him for the salvation of their souls. Uh, and there's another one. I can't think of it just off the top of my head. But he also represents those who no longer live for themselves. You know where that's at? Corinthians. It's going to bug me. And if I don't find it, it's just going to bug me to death. Um, I think it's in Second Corinthians. Is it First Corinthians? There we go. No. No, um, oh boy, it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, that's the one I was looking for, it says, for the love of Christ controls us, um, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and then verse 15 is a clarification, he says, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So who is the behalf upon whom Jesus died and rose again? Those who no longer live for themselves. So just those qualifications are very important so that you don't uh, imbibe the air of universalism, the idea that everyone will be saved, no exceptions whatsoever. Um, and this is something that's believed by a lot of people, right? <laughs> I, was, I was preaching at UNT. I'm back at UNT, by the way, everybody. So. <laughs> I was preaching at UNT and I, I told a young lady, I said, you know, about heaven and hell. And she says, well, everyone's going to heaven. Everyone is going to heaven. Everyone's going to be saved. I said, okay, well, what about the murderer, the rapist? I said, well, not, not, not them. I said, oh, what happened to everyone, you know? And so, uh, no, but you know, as a result of the fall, uh, we inherit Adam's guilt, his corruption, his pollution, as many theologians have pointed out, is moral corruption, is moral pollution. Every part of our being is uh, shot through with Adamic sin. If you've read my book, I think that's actually a line out of the book. But, uh, you know, that's right. Every part of man, right? So this is the doctrine of what? Total depravity. And uh, total depravity, being careful what we mean by total depravity. Some people call it radical depravity, right? Because radical meaning that it goes everywhere, Right? Um, it affects everything. Uh, man's mind is affected, his will, his body, uh, his ambitions, his motives, everything, his, ma- his mind, his will. Uh, the noetic effects of sin refer to those effects of sin upon the mind, where mind's, uh, man's mind is now fallen, uh, given to what the Bible calls a feudal mind darkened mind, those kinds of things. Okay, so <clears throat> that is really from a systematic uh, perspective. 
Um, and there's so much more that we can say about that, of course. But really what we're looking at in biblical theology is I want to develop more of a covenantal approach to this text. And let me just tell you that there is a theologian who has been of a great help to me here. And I would say he has been the most helpful, and that is theologian by the name of Meredith Klein. That's a man, by the way. He's not a woman. Uh, Meredith Klein is a... Uh, he used to be a professor of uh, theology in Westminster, and um, Meredith Klein wrote the book Kingdom Prologue, as I've mentioned to you before. The reason why I like this book so much, and um, uh, I agree at least with some of the premise of what he's saying there, is that Genesis is giving us the foundations for a, a covenantal worldview. That's what's happening. That Genesis is not, you know, the Sunday school story of a serpent slithering in the in the garden, and he's like kind of like a pop up color book or something. You know, th- th- there is something way deeper going on uh, in the midst of protology, and really, what it is, it's kind of laying the foundation for a covenantal worldview to understand the 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 way that God is going to work throughout the the rest of redemptive history along these covenantal lines. Now. The fall is uh, very important because this is where we see the intrusion of what Meredith Klein calls the anti-Lord. Now, I never really thought of the serpent in that way. Um, You've heard of Antichrist, right? But remember that already in the book of Genesis, God has been called Elohim, which means just translating it, God. But he's also been called in chapter 2 now, right, uh, uh, Yahweh, right, which means more like Lord, and especially Yahweh is the Old Testament's preferred use of a title for God that refers to God as the covenant Lord. Okay, that's whatever covenant is really explicit. Uh, this is what most commentators point out. So God already in Genesis has been revealed as Lord God. He is Lord God. And so when the serpent comes into the scene, he comes in as an anti-Lord, right? Opposing the God of creation and opposing the covenant Lord uh, of mankind. And um, he does this because his aim is ultimately, right, to oppose God. Now, when we think about the fall of mankind, what are we thinking the serpent is doing? We're thinking the serpent is tempting Eve because he's trying to destroy man, right? Because he hates mankind. Some people would say he hates mankind because man is made in the image of God, and so he ultimately is opposing God. Um, This is actually true. Um, you'll see this, I would say, with regards to the Antichrist, right? You'll see this when, when the Antichrist arrives on the scene, which is getting a little bit, you know, into, uh, sort of, uh, controversial, you know, territory, right? What he will do, what he will be, whether he will be, whether it's a he or is it it or what. Uh, I do think it is a he. I do think it will be in a person, a person, a personal, embodiment of all evil energized by satan himself um but what one of the things that he does is that he it says in thessalonians chapter 2 that he will oppose god he will oppose god so make no mistakes uh the temptation in the garden is about 
Satan versus God, right? He is the anti-Lord. He is against God. His desire is to uh, attack his glory and his honor. Now, are we there? Genesis chapter 3. Let's work slowly through this text. There's so much here um, that we can get to. Um, Verse 1 begins by speaking, I would say, at least verse 1, part A, is speaking what is true about the serpent. Notice, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, which the Lord God, right, Yahweh Elohim, has made. Very interesting. So up to this point, what we deduce is that Satan comes here in the form of a serpent, and that the serpent is in fact described as being crafty, and that the serpent is in fact a beast of the field, and that the serpent is in fact something that the Lord has made. Right? Now, all of that is not taken into account by, by, by Adam and Eve, by especially Eve, right? As she is tolerating, um, uh, the serpent in there. Uh, she, she she is not understanding that this serpent is actually an intruder. And as much as the conversation goes or the further it goes, the more she should have understood that. Um, but the serpent, oh boy, where it says that he is crafty, that, that he was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field, that is as much a a description of the sinister character of Satan as it is of the physical properties of a snake. Right, So there's definitely a play on words here. Yes, when you look at a snake, it slithers and it's gross. How can people like snakes? Do you guys like snakes? Don't tell me you got a pet snake at home. Lynn, you like snakes? We'll forgive you for that. <laughs> the Lord will forgive you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess from a distance I can appreciate one. But they slither, you know, and uh, and and, and just, you can't trust them. I mean, they're going to lash out and bite you at any time. And so really God consigns Satan to a creature that is so fitting who he is. Um, and if we see what's going on here, the woman should have perceived this intruder as a threat. And she should have done that because remember going all the way back to chapter uh, 1 verses 26 and 27 as part of being made in the image of God their task as image bearers in especially in the context of the garden I mean they're supposed to cultivate the garden keep the garden right but over all creation we're told that Adam and Eve were supposed to rule right uh, uh, other other paths other translations would say that they, they, they should have had dominion right they they should have had dominion and and what what the theologians would say is that what that dominion, that rulership is, that kingship in a sense, it is a delegated kingship, which amounts to the, basically uh, uh, Adam and Eve being the first vassals under the great king, right? So you have in in a sort of, uh, uh, you know, old covenantal uh, agreements, you would have you would have the great king, then under him you would have the vassal, and he would be given authority by the great king, um, and he, the vassal, would owe the king uh, a certain amount of obedience and honor. So that is exactly what we see going on with Adam and Eve, a very simple picture of that, that they were supposed to rule. I mean, that's why it uses the language of ruling and dominion and, 
and all of that. Um, so she, she should have perceived as a, as a queen unto her God, uh, Eve, that the beast was a, a threat and that he should have been taken dominion of. She, as soon as she entered into a conversation with the, with the, with the serpent and understood that he began to deviate from God's law, she should have stepped on his head. <laughs> right? Uh, right away. <laughs> and not tolerated him to speak and defile God's kingdom. Okay? But she didn't. Instead, what does she do? She listens. And the conversation begins. Right? Um, and notice, and what's amazing here, we should point out very quickly, notice as the serpent speaks, he says to the woman, indeed, has God said, um, you shall not eat from any of the tree of the trees, uh, from any tree of the garden. Now, I just want to point out quickly that, that, that Satan's approach is not atheism, right? So his main attack against Christianity is not atheistic. It is not to get people to believe that God simply doesn't exist. It wasn't Eve. There is no God that would say, right? He, he, he knows that Eve knows God, has communion with God, right? Um, has seen the work of God, has, has, has revelation from God. So instead of doing that, he would rather distort and pervert God's revelation. If he can get man to believe in his perversions of Christianity, that is much more effective. And what do you see? Whew, what do you see? I mean, just a thousand cults exist, false religions everywhere, right? Uh, false Jesuses throughout uh, human history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then ultimately an antichrist that will himself arrive and arrive apparently at a temple, whatever that means, whether it's a physical temple or it's just somehow taking or assuming a position in a spiritual temple like a church, whatever it means, he's there not saying God doesn't exist. He's there using some sort of religious system, but ultimately declaring himself to be God, right? It's just amazing. But what this results in, as you have the emergence of this anti-Lord, and you'll see why he is such an anti-Lord, is because there is now an assault on God's covenant order, or God's covenant, assault on God's covenant order. That's what it should have said. This is important. Shouldn't have said Lord, sorry. God's covenant order, here's why. Because he be, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, not even the atheist was a, not even the devil was an atheist. Well, that's pretty hardcore, Trish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, right? So, as we, you know, start kind of pondering Satan's attack on God's covenant order, what is the context in which this comes? Understand what has just taken place. God has created man, put them in his sanctuary, his cosmic temple, 
and put them in the sanctuary in Eden, some would say. And they have the potential to arrive at total dominion, permanent global dominion of the whole planet as God's representatives and as his vice regents, those who rule on behalf of God, right? And this is what Satan is attacking. He is attacking that, and the way that he's going to do this, the way that he's going to do this is that he's going to, watch this now, Satan is not there to try to kill the woman. He's not there to try to strangle her, right? Satan is so subtle. You know, the word crafty can also mean subtle, right? It just implies he's a snake. (laughs) He's just a snake. He's so deceptive. He's so tricky, right? Think of the word crafty where Paul talks about, you know, that one of the reasons why we become members of a church is so that we will not be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the waves of the sea, by crafty, what, what is it? By the seafulness of of, of men, craftiness, scheming, all of that, right? So that's what's going, and it's attached to heresy. So that's what the serpent is doing is he is a, he is the, the first anti-lord and the first heretic, right? Yes, sir. I was just going to say that when Jesus says go out, we're to be a shield of serpents. Mm, mm-hmm. A double, a double meaning, right? There's a positive sense in which you can't you can't take the word serpent universally to be, you know, connoting evil, right? But but the shrewdness of it, right? We need to be very perceptive. So so yeah, I mean, Satan here is being very very shrewd in the way that he's approaching this woman. He has a thought out plan, and what he's going to ultimately try to do is use a power greater than his own. To undo mankind. Please go back to Genesis chapter 2. Right? Verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it, to keep it. The Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it you will surely die. Satan understands that there is an oath of malediction attached to this original covenantal order if he can just get the humans to disobey. The covenant law, the covenant order, the covenant king, God, who is the, who would become and implies even in this text is implied that he himself, listen to this, is covenant avenger. You transgress the covenant, God himself will see to it that you die. You see? So the serpent is seeking to utilize a power greater than his own in order to put to to the to an end God's covenant order, to undo it and make God do it. <laughs> make God be the one to undo his own order. By forcing the malediction of the oath of what has been called the covenant of works, this Adamic covenant arrangement with Adam and Eve, that if they eat, they die. And so the serpent thinks, all I need to do is get them to eat. And what is promised in the tree of life 
will never be realized. You see how he's trying to undo the entire, the entire order? Because what's at stake, what's at stake is the permanent kingdom of God. Meredith Klein points this out. He says, the objective of the temptation is in order to prevent man's attainment of the permanent world dominion as a vice region of God. I agree with him. Maybe Satan saw his own fall as an opportunity. He took advantage of God's covenant community by turning God's power against them and cursing them using God's own power. Klein suggests this much. He says the objective was in effect to desecrate and to desolate the holy dominion of God over which man had been set as royal priest. Satan's strategy was to contrive and listen to this now to contrive and to activate the curse that was that uh, the cursed threatened in the covenant sanctions and so utilize the very power of God to accomplish the objective of reducing the cosmic sanctuary to chaotic ruin. Uh, I, I've looked through all my biblical theology textbooks that I have, Beale, Schreiner, Desmond Alexander, everybody, Alan Ross. Meredith Klein is the best. <laughs> On this issue, Meredith Klein was the best. I was so drawn in to Klein's conclusions here because it, if we're honest, we think about the fall of man a lot of times we think of it mainly in an anthropocentric uh, sort of way, right? We think about what this temptation means for us, how this affects us, right? What we can learn for, for our lives, for our present temptation, all of that, right? But really uh, what Meredith Klein did for me is he, is he, he caused me to kind of back out, zoom out a little bit to see the greater picture, to see the context of the temptation, the context of the fall, how it is connected to God's covenant order in chapter 2, the implications, what that means for a permanent covenant glory of man, all of that. Um, and I use the word covenant unashamedly because, remember, first Adam, second Adam, um, I think it was I think it was Meredith Klein, or uh, Edmund Clowney who said, if you want to learn about the first Adam, study the second Adam. If you want to learn about the second Adam, study the first Adam, right? And what he meant by that is a lot of times what you can, what you see in the se- in the second Adam or vice versa, often it, it, there's a parallel, either a contrast or there's some sort of correlation between the two. And of course, the last Adam is in covenant with God, right? So, and he shows us that he is there to restore an everlasting covenant with God and his people, right? That is what Adam was supposed to do. He was supposed to establish the covenant order if he would have crushed the head of the serpent. If man would have just killed the devil from the beginning, then we would have, we could have had a permanent covenant order, a kingdom of priests for all eternity, right there and then, right? Now, um, this is where, if you remember, when we talk about the covenants, Right, let me just do this. So there we are with the potential that Adam has to establish a permanent covenant order. Adam and Eve, had they just triumphed over the serpent, right? But they don't. Why do you think they don't? What's that? So that Christ could die? Okay. Okay, so 
Yeah, because if if we're looking if we're looking at covenant of works, right? Covenant of works, Genesis chapter two, verse fifteen, following, and then you have what theologians call covenant of what? Covenant of grace, which is what? Genesis three, fifteen, and following. Okay. But remember that prior to these covenants, I believe, many believe, most good theologians believe, any good theologian would believe, prior to these covenants, there's a prior covenant, which is covenant of redemption. Wow. So the covenant of redemption secures, I would say, the glory of God. It ensures that God is going to save a people and triumph over the serpent, not through the first Adam, but through the second Adam. Right? So, I know this is kind of like sovereignty, right? Heavy sovereignty here. But what we're saying is that the fall was ordained by God so that it would result in God's glory through Jesus Christ. Any questions about that? Anything? Yeah, yes, sir. So, um, is it wrong to like zoom into the, the scene at, uh, with the serpent and Eve to say that God sent the serpent to her? Is that going too deep with that? Or? I, well, I mean, I don't know that I would say he sent the serpent to her, um, but he definitely ordained for the serpent to be there. You see what I'm saying? It's like that's kind of what's tricky about sovereignty language, right? Um, there has to be there has to be a way in which we allow for Scripture, because I think Scripture provides this, to give us these secondary causes upon which God separates Himself from the viciousness of the act. And so, I would never say God is the author of evil. I think that's irresponsible language. Maybe what you mean by that, I might agree with, depending on how you define it, right? If you're saying God ordains all things whatsoever comes to pass, I agree with the Westminster Confession (laughs) on that point. But you go further than that and you start using language that I think goes further than Scripture, and I rather just say, God knows. (laughs) You know, did he send the serpent into the garden? I mean, he was definitely sovereign over that. Right. It didn't escape his sovereignty. Right. God is like, like, oh no, there's a snake slithering into the serpent. <laughs> right. I think one, um, you know, one thing that uh, you know, gets me you know, thinking about that when Edward says things like it's the happy fall, it's like the yeah. ultimate goal. Felix Koopa, yeah. That's right. Really is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Hey, guys, come on in. Yeah, yes, thank you. Uh, did you have a question, Gail? Um, so what I'm, I think I, I'm hearing you say is that really the ultimate test of Adam and Eve was kill the serpent, don't kill the serpent. And so, and if they had done that properly, they would have secured the, the covenant. The king, that's right. So I think so. I mean, I don't know if you said the ultimate test. Yeah. Like, I think the ultimate test was the covenant uh sanctions right okay freely eat 
and be blessed. Okay. If you eat, you'll be cursed. So that's their probation. Okay. Their probation is if you, if you, if you violate God's law by eating the forbidden tree, then you die. Yeah. Right? So their ultimate purpose was to pass probation. Okay. How long would that have took? What would that, what would that look like? We're not, we're not sure. However, let me say this, you guys, based, especially now, by looking at Meredith Klein, if you just meditate deeply enough on the text, right, um, I, I think you can hammer away at understanding some of the answers that would help with that. You know, like how long would it take? What does it look like? What are the conditions, right? All, all of that, right. you know. Um, but what was the other? I well, thought you I was said. Gonna add the, the second half of that was if, oh, if they would have. If they would have successfully. Definitely. Done that. Or no, Def- I'm sorry. No, that's Maybe. Not my question at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe not the ultimate test. Yeah. I think it's part of their probation. Right. And we see, and we see it, and we see it with the second Adam. Right. Where do we see that? Matthew chapter four. Interestingly enough, it says Jesus by this, the spirit drove him out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. (laughs) Right. Mark chapter one verses, uh, 12 and 13. It says Jesus was out among the wild beasts putting him in an Edenic condition, right? In the sense of that, that causes us to recall the animals in Eden. But Mark says he was with the wild beasts. So what I think Mark as a good biblical theologian is trying to do is he's trying to show us that the temptation of Jesus was in fact greater than the first Adam because Adam was in a paradisical state. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness among wild beasts. That would, that, 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 you know, where his life was in danger, you know, and, uh, I've been to the wilderness in Israel, for example, and in Jerusalem, uh, and what, I had a different understanding of what wilderness was until I went there. (laughs) I, I, I thought wilderness, I was thinking like, I don't know, you know, like a, like a forest, you know, like a, uh, that, you know, some kind of scary, you know, Wizard of Oz forest or something, you know. It's not, it's a desolation, it's more like a desert. You know what I mean? But then you find yourself in total isolation out there. There's nothing out there. Scorpions, snakes, you know, coyotes, whatever. Uh, yes, sir. You somebody over here too, I'm sorry. Uh huh. Mm. Top of that, he's fasting. That's right. Yeah, what is first John chapter three verse eight? I think it's verse eight, right? What does that say? Uh I would say that's another uh that's another great passage to kind of correlate with Genesis one and protology, right? Because that is protology and eschatology. Remember that when Jesus arrives on the scene in the Bible, according to the Bible, it is what? The consummation of the ages. So the, so Jesus' arrival is eschatological. It is end time. It is the end of time. When Jesus arrives, it is the last days has come, right? Um, but it says in verse, uh, verse eight, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil, right? 
And that is what Adam and Eve should have done. They should have destroyed the works of the devil right there at the beginning, but they failed. Yes, sir. It, it just yeah yeah sure sure i know what you're saying yeah yeah that's right it's 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 satan has to get permission from god before he does anything it's very important to remember right satan sometimes uh you know robert morey wrote a book called satan's devices where he talks about everything you'd ever want to know about the devil we're, we're afraid to ask and one of the things he says is you got to remember the devil is not omniscient he is not omnipotent he is not omnipresent right he is a pawn in god's redemptive scheme See, what's amazing is the anti-Lord, as he intrudes into the, into the garden temple of God, he comes in to undo God's redemptive purposes, but doesn't understand that as a serpent, in fact, he plays a role to accomplish God's redemption all along. See, he, what he's trying to do with the, with the woman, I believe, he's trying to assert himself as sovereign. How do we know that? Because he takes it upon himself to, to change the covenant sanctions of God, Right? Look at what he says. Look at verse um, verse 3. The woman said, and this is interesting, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, From the tr- fruit of the trees of the garden you may, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And don't start asking me like how did, how did Eve lie before there was sin? And I don't know. All I know is that because... I think what this shows is that because she's in an unlawful conversation with the intrusion of an anti-Lord, it has already begun to affect her thinking. So already, epistemically, she has been compromised. And she's already imbibing heresy, right? Uh, Just because she is in this seductive conversation, this subtle conversation with the serpent. Um on and on these kind of but look at what he does and then he says then he says the serpent said to the woman oh boo you know you're in trouble now you surely will not die for god knows that in the day that you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil so what does the anti-lord do is he gives in he gives his own covenantal arrangements with his own right with his own stipulations with his own promises right he is he is standing in the temple of God Eden in the garden right basically proclaiming himself to be God giving giving out laws promising blessing and cursing right He's laying down what? A new covenant order. Not new world order. Don't get all conspiracy. <laughs> the, the Illuminati, but, <laughs> but a new covenant order, right? Where his law is the supreme law of the land. He replaces the Lord in the attempt to be sovereign. It's so diabolical the more you get into this. It's so evil and diabolical. Right. Any questions, comments? Yes, sir. Marshall.
like she invited him, you know, there, you know. That's right. She was all right. It was all right with her. With her. Very good question. Yeah, where was Adam? Where was Adam? Uh, so, uh, Meredith Klein is big on, on capitalizing on the sins of omission here, right? She should have been keeping the garden. She, she should have been tending it. She should have been, uh, uh, spreading the image of God, right? And, and, which is basically a, a symbolic of, uh, continuing on God's rule that He had delegated to the, to them. She should have been, um, keeping any intruders out of God's garden that didn't belong, all of that, if she would have been doing that, if Adam would have been doing that, the serpent would have never entered into the garden, right? So they, in a sense, you know, by what they failed to do, you know what I mean, they opened themselves up, they became susceptible uh, to what they inevitably did, you know? So negatively, they did not do what they were told to do, in a sense, uh, and had they been busy doing that, they would have never come to this point. Adam, and of course, you know, here we are, different lessons, you know, for maybe even marriage, right? I mean, where is the head of the home, right? Where is the man who is supposed to be guarding his home, protecting his home, guarding his wife, right? Instead, he lets his wife become exposed to the full force of the intruder, right? And and allows her to be deceived, and so, you know, on and on the implications go, and this goes into First Timothy chapter uh, three, uh, chapter two, verses nine through eleven, where it talks about, you know, why women can't teach in the church because Eve was deceived, not the man, you know. And there's a lot of controversy there. That's not what this class is about, but there's a lot. But the, but the implications are far-reaching when you violate God's order. The disastrous results that come from that, you know. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, again, we, we, we have to see that when we think of the devil, his aim is nothing less than the total termination of God's covenant order. Everything. Uh, the, you know, we're thinking, uh, you know, the, the devil is just trying to get one woman deceived and one man to fall into sin. It's way bigger than that. If anything you can take away from here, it's way bigger than that, right? You must remember what is being promised in the covenant of works, right? Uh, or if you don't like the language of the covenant of works, in the agreement that God made with man that could result in everlasting life, um, that is what the devil wants to, wants to undo. Yes, sir? Good question. I think it was a snake. I think he did take bodily form as a snake. There's no reason why not. Remember, he is compared to the other beasts of the field. So the literalism of this, right? You start going down the path of metaphorical sort of symbolic imagery behind this, there's no end to it. 
That's what liberalism did. L- liberalism did that many years ago, right, is they, they turned basically this whole episode of temptation into nothing more than a parable for lessons of life. That's it. So liberalism just, you know, um, basically deflated, you know, the power of this text by injecting a foreign sort of non-literal, non-literal, allegorical, poetical type of, of genre method of interpretation that it's like poetry. It's not poetry. It's literal redemptive history. Now, granted, we are not given every detail that we could want, right? Remember, we're in protology. This is the, these are some of the most primitive sections of scripture. We don't expect to get a full-fledged didactical presentation of either demonology or anthropology or soteriology. What we're given is we're given it in narrative form. But that narrative is literal. Any other questions about that? That's an important one, right? I hate liberalism. Can I say that? Is that all right? Don't they tell you to hate the things God hates and love the things? I hate liberalism. I mean, I I hate it. You know what I mean? I've seen it destroy people's lives. Resist the devil and he will flee. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much here, right? It's like even that. Look at that. You're all the way in James, right? And that has connections back to protology. Yes, sir. I bet you see something else. So that the devil went in. Yeah. So there, you know, uh, well, yeah, this is the original, exactly. you know, this is the original marriage on the rocks. You know what I mean? Like they should have been in a different, they should have been in a harmonious presentation, presenting a harmonious united front against the serpent. But what do we find? We find, where's the man? Isn't that always, the, where's the, where's the man? I mean, the man's always abdicating somewhere, right? Like Ray Comfort says, God's always got to call man twice. You know, Adam, Adam, you know, Abraham, Abraham, you know, where are, it's like, we're clueless, you know, we're, 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 my wife, what, what, what? My mom said the men were in lolly land. That's right. That's right. Another question? Anyone? John, did you have one? Else? Okay, guys, let's go to worship. We're, did you have a question? Last question. Comment. Last one right here. What's your name? Uh, I'm Jared. Good to meet you, Jared. Hi. Nice to meet you guys. Um, well, actually, I noticed that in Genesis, you know, um, the serpent made the, the God out to be a liar. Correct. And he said that, um, you know, he said you shall, you would not surely die. You know, but God already told them prior in Genesis 2, uh, in um, verse 16, he said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the mm-hmm. tree Mm-hmm. So just that in itself, it shows that Satan had a diabolical plan, plan there just to make God out to be a liar. Absolutely. And more than that, right? So what do we have? What's the result of the fall? What is at the end? What's the, what's the end picture here? Satan is more moral than God. He is, he is more ben- benevolent than God because he really wants what's good for us and God doesn't, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, that's right. Satan is telling the truth. God is a liar. I mean, think of that. <laughs> Anti-Lord. That's why he is that. Huh? 
Yeah, he's breaking all the commandments, right? He's an idolater. And what, what happens is that ultimately man becomes polytheistic. All of a sudden they have many gods, right? They follow their own law. They follow Satan's law, right? And then all in rejection of the covenant God. The, the implications here are so many that, you know, we can do another class on this next week maybe. <laughs> Let's, do it. Let's go to worship.